Well, thank you all for being here tonight, and I want to welcome everybody here and everyone listening on our podcast channel. Um, tonight, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to start with verse 1. And tonight, Peter urges Christians to be committed to fulfilling their purpose of their lives in Christ, that new creation that we are in Christ. And we've been rescued from our meaningless lives and set apart from the world in order to be used for God's purpose and focusing on the importance of believers bearing up under unjust suffering and continuing to live well during that suffering because suffering will happen. So there's a couple of ideas tonight I just want us to know right up front. We're going to talk about being servants and we're also going to talk about our identity with Christ in our suffering. And the third thing is about death to that old life. The death to the old life and the attitude that Christ followers should have as we move forward. You know, um, I went on vacation a couple weeks ago. And I'll just tell you a quick story. Um, when we went on vacation, first thing I did was I took a my phone, and my computer with me, right? So the first day, what did I do? I opened it up, and I looked at an email, kind of like, ah, so I closed it. Second day, I opened it up again, saw another email. I closed that thing up, I turned it off, and I turned my cell phone off for a week, literally. Turned it off for a week. And what I did was I let the Lord minister to me. In a mighty way. I had no distractions, nothing on my mind except spending time with Cindy and the kids and enjoying where we were. And there was wisdom to that, allowing the Holy Spirit to move in a mighty way like that. Because he guided me in this time of rest and he gave me some wisdom when it came to how I should be using my time and how I should be using my abilities, and the giftings. But unfortunately, when I returned, I had to turn that thing back on. And then the chains just felt like they were on me. But that's okay. Because I think a lot of us have that, don't we? We feel that. But there's an emphasis for all of us on time. And tonight... It's about how we use our time for the Lord. And Peter's going to talk about that because he says end times are near. And we know the end times are near, right? We knew that when Jesus said, when it's been 2,000 years, and we're getting closer and closer each and every day. So what we need to do is we need to prepare our lives for that. You know, whether we get raptured, or the Lord calls us home, we need to make the best use of our time here on earth. And Peter will describe a couple of attitudes that we could have as we choose to live for Christ. Our attitudes, they can be used as a weapon, they can be weak or they can be strong, but they can also defeat us, our attitude towards things. Because our outlook determines outcome. How we see things determines how we'll live our lives. And as a believer, we need to have the right attitude if we're going to live for Christ. So if you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'll start in verse 1. And it says this, Therefore, 
Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, Peter is emphasizing throughout his letter here that Christians should and they will experience suffering in their lives. And think about what sin does to us. But most of all, think about what sin did to Jesus. Jesus suffered enormously for our sin, our sin. In fact, that was his purpose. That was his mission here on this earth. And if we follow him and we continue with his mission, we should expect hardships as well, each and every one of us. And Christians, we should arm ourselves with the same attitude towards suffering that Jesus did. So what was his attitude? What was Jesus' attitude towards suffering? Jesus understood that this suffering was built into God's plan for each and every one of us. And it was his purpose here on earth, so he expected it. He was not surprised when hardships came, and he didn't run from them. Church, if we're not prepared to suffer for Christ as Christ suffered for us, We'll be surprised when these difficult times come and we may be tempted to run away from them. And when we run away from them, we could be running away from God's purpose for our lives. In, Second John, in John 16, 4, it says this. Jesus says, I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. We need to be armed with a Christ-like attitude. Our minds need to be armed like Christ was. And he's talks, Peter talks about this reference to done with sin. It's not that a Christian who suffers have become sinless and perfect because we have not. We will all make mistakes and we will all make sinful choices. But we certainly have set our lives on a course away from these sinful pleasures, away from the escape from lives, and towards the readiness to be uncomfortable and to experience hard things for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that can be hard. But now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. In Romans 6.10, it says this. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But, then, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Those who have trusted Christ for their salvation have died with him in this spiritual sense. And we have been raised to this new life, which we are free from sin. Each and every one of us. Sin loses its power over us. It loses the power to defeat us. And our real values show up clearly. And these sinful pleasures that we once did seem so much less important in our lives. When we focus on Christ and our call to be servants like him. And that person with that attitude and that mindset makes a clean break from sin. And we're still going to sin, each and every one of us, because we're human. And then in verse 2, it says this, As a result, 
They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. Amen? We live for the will of God. Peter said that Christians who have suffered in their bodies, they're done with sin. And this is not intended to mean that they're suffering, they've achieved this sinless perfection. But it's saying that we have changed. We've changed our attitude. We've changed our mindset. But what has changed? What's changed is the directions of our lives. That now we follow Christ and not the world. The Christ follower who's chosen the direction of a path leading away from indulging in a sinful lifestyle. Peter's saying that suffering is this word is equivalent to death. And sometimes this word touches a deep nerve in us, doesn't it? But it's a truth. When we accept our identity with Christ and the death of Christ in our salvation, we can accept the principle of death in the old life, and the old way that we do things. The contrast is between our desires and what God's will is for our lives. It's a question of our reason for getting out of the bed in the morning, right? What drives us? Why do we get up in the morning? Holy Spirit, what do you have for me today? Christians who are prepared to endure these struggles for Christ are motivated to do the will of God even when it hurts. And sometimes it does hurt. It's painful. But if we give in to the world around us, we'll be wasting our time and we will regret it when we stand in front of Jesus for all of eternity. And the will of God is so much better. It's not a burden that's placed upon us. It's a pleasure of doing God's will that enables us to make all these burdens light in our lives. Psalm 33, 11 says it like this, but the plans of the Lord stand firm, the purpose of his heart through all generations because God's will comes from his heart and his love for each and every one of us. It's because God loves us that much and his will, his actions toward us. And when we do the will of God, we're investing this time that we have right here and now for eternity, which is lasting and satisfying. We may not always understand what God is doing, and I make this joke about this, that when I get to heaven, I'll have a flat forehead because Maybe God will tell me, maybe he won't, but I'll be going, oh, so that's the reason that you did that. We don't know why he does what he does, but he's God, and we're not. But God know, we do know that God loves each and every one of us, and what he does is always best for us. Now in verse 3, let's look at this attitude that we should have towards sin, what Peter's telling us. He says this, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Christians must take on Christ's attitude, choosing a path that leads away from sin, to point our lives to doing what God's will in our lives is. Some people will try to avoid pain at any cost, won't we? 
I think we all do. We all try to avoid it. But avoiding suffering is not part of God's plan. Now, Peter writes to his readers, they have spent enough time in this old lifestyle that they're doing because this lifestyle comes very natural to us, doesn't it? It comes very natural. And if you've ever led that such a lifestyle, those committed to Christ, you should see the past and see that there's no place for that in the future because our future is eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. Notice again the difference. This is not simply just a list of sins that we must avoid. This is a list of addictions which entangle those who live in the flesh for comfort and pleasure. Sometimes we forget the bondage of sin and only remember the passing pleasure of sin. But sin is only pleasurable for a season. And Peter sees this dramatic break between the old and the new life of a believer. He says this, in effect, you spent enough time in the past doing these sinful things that all these Gentiles or Christians are doing, but the Christian break with this sinful past becomes increasingly clear more and more each and every day as a person's life is brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. When we make Jesus our Lord and Savior, our lives will change. Our attitudes will change. But the enemy, the enemy will always use these memories, the past, to discourage us. He will always look at a Christ follower and say, don't forget you have baggage. You have baggage there. And if people know about that, they're not really going to care for you that much. That's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie because we're all made new in Christ and we all have baggage. But thank God for Jesus that we are clean of that. He has made us as white as snow. And the enemy uses that to discourage us. But these memories should be used to increase our faith from where we were to where we are now, how we live for Christ. Remember, God urged Israel to remember that they were once slaves, and we were once slaves to sin. Paul remembered his pers- when he persecuted Christ followers, and it increased his faith. The point is, those who live for the will of God set the course of their lives in a different direction following Christ. If you keep on driving, looking through your rearview mirror, you're going to crash. Keep moving forward, looking through the windshield, following Jesus Christ. In verse 4, it says this, They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Peter wrote that these Christians that take on this Christ-like attitude, that the world will be surprised at that. Have you had that happen to you? Has anyone been surprised at your attitude? towards sin, towards Christ. But here's the thing, we should expect it. It's the normal part of doing God's will here on earth. Because we get used to things. The other night, um, we went out to dinner and uh, we went to this restaurant. We went with some friends, good friends of ours. And this restaurant, it was so dark. 
we almost couldn't see the menus, but we had to, almost had to have a flashlight to see the menus, right? And we're looking at the menus, and I realized that I didn't have my glasses, so I borrowed Cindy's. Thank you, Cindy. Because I forgot mine, I always do. But after a few minutes, it was very interesting that how we adjusted to the darkness. How easily it was to adjust to that darkness. And then we were able to see, I was able to see that menu again. It didn't take long to get accustomed to that. And I was sitting there and I thought, you know, this will teach. I think this will teach. Because I think that's what happens. How easy is it for us to get accustomed to sin? It's the little things that happen each day that we go, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. We start compromising who we are in our identity with Christ. Because the battle we all know is a battle that happens in our minds. It's our attitude about sin. We hate sin and we should oppose it. And gradually... We get used to it again, don't we? Just like the darkness, we get used to it. And we shouldn't be that because we're called to be that bright, shining light. We should always be shining brightly so we can see that menu all the time, right? That's what we want to do. And the one thing that will destroy the rest of our time here on earth is sin. When we continue to be sinful. So don't be surprised having made the choice to live for God and his will, non-believers will malign you. They will heap abuse on you. They're surprised, even offended at times, that you don't, don't join in with them because it actually insults them that you're not participating in what they're doing. The point I'm trying to make is this. The world will notice the changes as, we, as Christ lives in us. The world will notice the difference in each and every one of us as we live for Christ. You know, unbelievers don't understand the change that their friends and their family experience when they trust God and they become a child of God. But here's the thing. People don't think it's strange at all when people wreck their bodies and they destroy their homes living Lives are out of control, running from one sin to the other. But let an alcoholic become sober or an immoral person become pure and the family and friends think they've lost their mind. That's the way our world thinks. Jesus, they thought the same thing about Jesus. In Mark 3.21, it says this, when his family heard this, they went to him to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. I think that's pretty good company for us, isn't it? We must have a patient attitude towards the lost. Even though they don't agree with our lifestyle and we don't participate in their sin, unsaved people are blind to spiritual truths and they're dead to spiritual nourishment and enjoyment. In Ephesians 2, 1, it says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, but we are made alive in Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, it says this, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life, and that's us, in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
God intends for the world to see Christ in us. And godly living will bring persecution. So when the unsaved heap this abuse on you, what time is it? It's an opportunity and a time to witness to them. It's an opportunity to witness to them. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. The unsaved may judge us, but one day God will judge them as well. In verse 5 it says this, But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are dead now so that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God's regard to the Spirit. The point here is very simply, God's paying attention. He's paying attention to what's going on. Sometimes we think we're getting away with stuff. We're not getting away with anything. God's paying attention. And everyone will stand before God, and they will give an account of their lives at this final judgment. And God in this context is probably Jesus. It is Jesus. Those who rejected Christ and abused Christians will give an account and they will be judged by Jesus. And Peter simply implies that suffering Christians may be abused for now, but ultimately they will be vindicated by God. And these people who abused us or the Christians for their refusal of receiving Jesus Christ and going along with the culture. And what do we hear from our culture? What does our culture say? Why waste your life doing God's will when you're just going to be dead in the end? You only live once, right? Isn't that what they say? So get all the pleasure that you can. If we're born once, we're going to die twice. But when we're born twice, we only die once. We die that physical death, but we will have a spiritual life for eternity in heaven. And Peter insists that this is not the case. Don't live like that. There is another life coming for a Christ follower. And we'll be rewarded for not doing these sinful things. The Father is the ultimate source of judgment. But he will delegate that judgment to Jesus. In John 5, 27, it says this. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Jesus has all authority. And that means there is no authority except that which he gives or he takes away. So when scripture says the gospel was preached to the dead, it means that those who have died after trusting Christ, their choice to live for God, to suffer for their body and their bodies for Christ's sake while alive, they lead to this opportunity to live in the spirit for all of eternity with God. And there's one thing that's for certain. There is no power or authority that can ever overthrow the kingdom of God. And so we rejoice and we have hope because we know we have won victory in Jesus. And now Peter's going to talk about our conduct a little bit. In verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. 
Peter's writing here that everything, the time, ends are near. Everything is drawing near. Everything for history has already happened. It's been necessary. The Messiah has come. He has died. He's been resurrected. And now he's back with the Father. And he reigns over all of creation. And now he's ready to judge that creation. We are living in those end times right now. As the day continues to draw near. So what is the right response to this awareness to the end, that the end is near? Do we panic? Do we get all upset? No, we don't. Peter's answer to this is the most rational response that we can have. We pray. We pray. And prayer requires strong and clear minds. That's why he says sober-minded. This means serious. In other words, we should be careful how we live and what we pray for. Sober-mindedness, according to Peter, means that living with a single-minded focus. And what is that focus? We have set our hope fully on the grace that has been brought to us through the revelation of who Jesus Christ is in our lives. And it means being sober-minded is living with eternity in view. We live with the mindset of eternity, not for the here and now. We must be self-controlled and alert and exercise sound judgment about our choices each and every day. In Ephesians 5.18, it says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit, just as drinking a great deal can cause a person to be controlled by that wine or that alcohol, we can't be controlled by anything except the Holy Spirit. Focusing on the Spirit in our lives, this is how we live our lives. We walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Our choices impact our ability to think clearly. And it's better to be self-controlled so that we can be pray, and that we can be filled by the Holy Spirit, not only filled by the Holy Spirit, that we're under the Holy Spirit's influence, that we're led by him as well. And how necessary is prayer for Christians? It's crucial. How concerned are we about keeping our minds nimble and focused for the purpose of praying, praying about all things? And then we'll move to verse 8. This is one of my favorite verses. It says this, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter writes that we're to love deeply. That's our first priority as a Christ follower is to love others like Christ loved us. What does it mean when it says love covers a multitude of sins? Well, the motivation of God's action towards all of us was because he loved us. And his love by sending Jesus Christ to this earth covered all of our sins. And for his people to cover a multitude of sins, Jesus did that for us on the cross. And we are forgiven 
And Christ's death atoned for all our sins. This is the second time in this letter that Peter commands Christians to work hard at loving others. Anybody working hard at that right now? It's hard. Thank you. Amen. It's hard, isn't it? Sometimes it can be hard. But it means fervently. We need to do it fervently. And we need to do it all the time. It's like this muscle that we have. Our faith is like a muscle. We have to exercise it to make it grow and use it. And this can be a challenge for believers, can it? It can be a challenge to each and every one of us to love deeply so profound that it overshadows human failings and our sins. Think about that. When we think about what that person did to me, (laughs) I'm not going to love them. Think about what we did to Jesus. And God still loves us. And that's why when we love deeply like that, it covers over that. And finally, the idea that our love for each other covers a multitude of sin relates to our imperfections as well. Because as Christ followers, we are not sinless. We all sin. But we all like to go, whoa, I'm not like him, right? My sin is, yeah, that's what humans do. We like to compare ourselves because my sin's not as bad as his. Sin is sin in God's eyes. But we need to love our brothers and sisters because we all sin. We're not perfect. And we have set our, our lives in a way from sin. But we still fail sometimes. We make mistakes even when we're trying to mean well. Love for each other includes forgiving each other, overlooking the past hurts, and building each other up when we fall, each and every one of us. And I'm going to tell you right now, right from the pulpit, I'm going to fail you sometimes. I'm going to let you down. It's going to happen. But I'm human. And I make mistakes. But I know one thing for sure. God loves me. And it's the same thing with each and every one of us that are here. And all God's children. He loves us no matter what it is. But we are going to let people down. It's going to happen. But how do we overlook that? How do we overlook the hurts and the failures? By having an attitude of love. Having an attitude of love. It's difficult for sin to grow and flourish in a community that is rich in Christ's love. Amen? It's hard. God loves us and we love all of you. Now in this next verse, Peter is going to urge Christians to demonstrate their love by offering their giftings. In verse 9, it says this, Offer hospitality one another without grumbling. Each of you should do whatever, use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. Now Peter urges us to love each other, to keep loving and use our gifts, the gift of hospitality without grumbling. But we do it through God's power and his strength. And we should always 
give an opportunity for hospitality to serve other Christians. Hospitality is known as welcoming guests or visitors in our homes. Most Christians think that hospitality is having people over for dinner or hosting a visiting missionary family or something like that. But in the Peter's time, what that meant was Christians were forced to flee because of persecution. So they were to show hospitality because there were people that were traveling with limited means. And they were refugees and they relied on their brothers and sisters in Christ to help them. And such hospitality could have been very risky at the time. But there's one thing that's for sure about that is it's a genuine way to show love. And we show love towards others. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 40, that whatever you do for the least of these, we're doing for him. We show hospitality to people. We're showing that love of Christ to them and for him. We should embrace the opportunity offering such hospitality out of sacrificial love without grumbling. And it says a steward, a steward is one that's entrusted to manage another one's property. And every good thing that we have comes from God. God's grace is intended for us, and he intends us to use our giftings to serve others and himself. If we fail to use God's gift and fail to serve others, then we fail to be good servants or good stewards in our life. Wisely using everything that God has given us to serve others, showing love to them. That's our purpose, and that's how we're set apart as God's holy people. We should manage our minds for effective praying. We should love each other deeply, including sharing our homes, our foods, with Christian brothers and sisters in need. In verse 11, it says this, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Amen? If anyone serves... They should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. In this verse, Peter's widening this idea of using our gifts. He's saying not only your home and your food, but what about the word of God? Sharing the word of God and our service. It's about our material possessions, but it's more about the word of God that we're sharing the word with unsaved people, serving them. And Peter tells Christ followers that they're set apart for God's purpose by fulfilling his word and doing his will, telling people about Jesus Christ. Our gifts on God's behalf with God's strength and for God's glory. Telling the lost world about Jesus Christ. So when we speak to others, we need to use words of encouragement. When we sacrifice our time and our energy to meet others' needs, we're drawing from God's own strength. And whatever glory that comes from these things, whatever glory happens through that, it all goes back to God. God gets the glory for everything. Our lives, our talents, the money that we have, our homes, and when we help people, 
That's our purpose in life. And God gets the glory when we tell people about Jesus Christ. And then in verse 12, it says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes on you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. He begins by calling everyone their friends because he cares deeply for these Christians that have been scattered. You know, there's false teachers all around all the time. And at that time, they were misleading Christians. And they're even doing that today telling everyone that there's good times, good days ahead if you make these God-pleasing choices, if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. However, he again urges them to expect these fiery trials instead of being surprised by them. We should not see persecution as something that's strange or unusual for God's people. Hardships will come. Peter says that not to judge God's character or his trustworthiness on the quality of our circumstances at the present time. These fiery trials and these tests increase our faith, and a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. And Peter continues to describe how Christians should respond when they face persecution, to take on Christ's attitude and expect suffering, God's purpose in our lives. Verse 13, it says this, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the suffering of Christ that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Peter's telling them, he's warning them that it's coming. Don't be surprised. But now he's saying something very strange. (laughs) Rejoice in it. Rejoice in this. This is not an idea that we take very seriously, is it? We can't rejoice in our suffering. But this is consistent to what Peter's been saying up to this point. Before we were in Christ, our lives were meaningless. And in Christ, our lives have meaning and great significance because Christ's life has meaning and great significance. As unlovable as we are, we're loved because of Jesus. That's why God loves us. And to the extent that we have suffered for him and that we will have much joy and gladness. In Romans 8, 17, it says this. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Amen. We take by faith that suffering for Christ now will contribute to our joy for all eternity. You know, we don't fully understand the significance of this at the moment. How could we? Because our thoughts are not like God. God's thoughts are not like ours. However, we do understand that the moment right now where we're at in human history is leading up to this. This allows believers to consider that suffering for Christ's sake is a thing worth rejoicing in. It's even worth suffering for, even though we would prefer to stop it. And then in verse 14, it says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Peter had firsthand knowledge 
of this. He heard Jesus explain this personally, this idea in Matthew 5.11, it says this, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Peter reminds Christians that it's a privilege that we are blessed to be allowed to be insulted for the name of Jesus Christ. It's a question of how, as Christ followers, we choose to see the reality of our circumstances. We can say, I'm being insulted because I'm a Christian, and this is a bad day. Woe is me. I'm going to have a pity party. Well, I can tell you one thing about a pity party. That's a party that God's not going to be at because it's all about you. He will not be there. Or you can say, my life is off track. Where is God? Or we can say this, I'm being insulted because I am a Christian. And what a blessing it is to be so closely identified with Christ that the world treats me the same way they treated him. That's exactly what our life is for, to be like Christ. It's about correcting our perspective, our attitude adjustment in the moment of suffering to fit our actual beliefs about who we are in Christ. Humans might insult us, but God's spirit rests upon us. And that's a fact worth rejoicing about. And then in verse 15, it says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. You know, Peter's just saying very simply that all suffering is not equally honorable, okay? It's not all equally honorable. But a Christian who experiences the consequences of bad choices, that is not suffering for Christ, And don't think that that's what it is. Because Christians are called to be good and moral and have good and moral conduct all the time. The actual word Christian appears only three times in the Bible. It's entirely possible that the word was used as an insult to believers in Peter's day. Being called a Christian was an insult. And he rejects the idea that being associated with Christ would ever be an insult. And it should never be an insult to us to be called a Christian. Instead, we should be boldly give God the glory in the name of Jesus Christ, right in the middle of these insults and these sufferings as they go on. It's an honor to carry the title of Christian if it truly indicates our identity in Christ and our place in God's family forever. In a culture that hates Christianity and Christians' values, this is a parallel honor to physical persecution. If we are different enough from the world and similar enough to Christ that the world hates us, it's a sign that we're doing something right. We're on the right path. Verse 17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, 
What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God does, in fact, judge his children on this side of eternity. That's a hard idea for some of us to get that. But what Peter is saying here, the, Hebrew, the writers of Hebrews says it as well, that God the Father who disciplines his children, God will discipline us. But we need to understand and make sure it's very clear that this is not a judgment for the purpose of punishing us for our sins or making us worthy of heaven. Because Peter and the gospel makes it very clear that Jesus Christ was our substitute on the cross for our sins that our payment has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. And the punishment for our sins is completed on the cross by Jesus. The judgment that Peter's referring to here is the purpose of purifying our faith. It's meant to draw us and to have us trust God more deeply, to abandon our hope of finding satisfaction in anything in this world apart from Jesus Christ. It's our faith when we trust in him. And that's what our Lord values the most. He values it so much he was willing to allow us to experience great suffering to help us grow and grow fully dependent on him. Peter fully makes another sobering point regarding God's judgment. That God is willing to allow his dear children to suffer under judgment in order to be purified to rescue them. In Proverbs 11:31 it says this, if the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. God judges his children during this life on earth in order to strengthen and purify our faith. Consider then those who fully reject the faith in Jesus Christ and decline the gospel what they will experience will be way, way worse. Those who reject Christ can expect much worse. Peter is saying that eternal salvation and faith comes through only Jesus Christ, and it will have difficulties in this life. Our loving Father treats us as children who need discipline to learn to trust Him, to learn to walk in His way, doing His will. In other words, God calls us righteous in Christ. God uses hardships in our lives to increase our faith and trust him, to make us more and more like Jesus. In verse 19, it says this, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. How should Christians respond in this life, especially to suffering when we experience these difficulties for being identified as Jesus Christ, Peter sums it up with this verse very simply. This is a declaration to ourselves and to the world around us that we will not wait for our circumstances to improve before we call God good. Because our God is good and he's good all the time. We trust our souls to the one who created our souls and everything else. Nobody and no one is worth that praise and that trust in Jesus Christ. God may use our hopefulness in the face of hardships to point others to faith in Jesus Christ. He uses our struggles for Christ's glory, and he may use our suffering as a kind of discipline for us to help us grow in him. 
And when we believe that our God is good and he is caring for us, even in the suffering, God gets the glory for all of eternity. We trust our souls to him. So what should we do right here and now while waiting for that day as we're suffering? What's the evidence that we have of trusting him? We give that evidence to the world by doing good, by doing God's will. It's never wrong to do good. Nothing speaks more powerfully of our faith in God through Christ than continuing to do good when we suffer. We demonstrate that we are indeed God's holy people set apart for his purpose in this life. Knowing our life is on the right path when we are insulted because we look like Jesus. What a blessing it is to be so closely identified with him that the world sees Christ in us. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the insults that come our way sometimes. They're not pleasurable. We know that. But if the world sees Christ in us, amen, that's what we want. We want to be like you. We want to continue doing good. And we want to continue to love others above all things because love covers that multitude of sins. It covered each and every one of us here tonight. And that's why we're able to be called children of God. And that we know that our future is with you for all of eternity rejoicing and praising you for who you are, our creator. And we will continue to do your will and do good here on this life because we have our minds set on one thing, that's Jesus Christ, a single-minded focus of eternity. And that eternity is with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.